Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Nature Biotechnology's First Rounders podcast. The guest today, is, well, first off, my name is Brady Huggett. I am the host of this First Rounders podcast, and our guest today is Stephen Quake. So Steve is a professor of bioengineering at Stanford, uh, where he also runs the Quake Lab. Uh, he is also the co-president of the new Chan Zuckerberg Biohub, this initiative put together by Mark Zuckerberg and his wife, Priscilla Chan, um, to sort of bring together the research strengths of Stanford, the University of California at San Francisco, and the University of California at Berkeley. So what did we talk about? We talked about that. We certainly talked about the Biohub. Um, we talked about the uh, Steve's translational work. Uh, he was a founder of a company called Fluidime. And he, um, we talked about uh, his father. His father was um, – he was – well, he was in college on a football scholarship before he sort of derailed himself and lost his scholarship – but he uh, righted the ship and went on to become an entrepreneur in the computer industry. Anyway, I, I won't tell you anymore. You can hear it when you hear it. So listen up. Here's your First Rounders podcast with Steve Quake. In fact, I don't know one of the core things, which is where you were actually born. Mm. It's connected to New York. I would have guessed the West Coast. Mm. Okay, so let's talk about that. You're born there. What did your father do? You know, my dad uh, was an early software entrepreneur, um, sort of uh, a very interesting character. He, uh, he grew up in Cooperstown, New York, on uh -huh. a farm, was the first in his family to go to college, got a football scholarship to go to a little college in Schenectady, joined a fraternity, uh -huh. lost his scholarship, got kicked out of college. <laughs> because of the fraternity? Yeah, too much partying. Kicked out of college. Oh yeah, they kicked. He couldn't afford to go. Right, they lost his scholarship. Oh, well, and he okay. Couldn't, couldn't right. afford to go. So, did he drink himself out of college? Pretty much. Um, he joined the army. Yeah. Um, did a hitch in the army. Kind of settled down. Grew up. Went back to college. Um, probably on the GI Bill. Um, I don't ask about that in detail. So he finished college um, and then you know started working. Uh, in the early computer industry and worked at IBM, worked at State University of New York, worked for the Criminal Justice Division in New York, and then eventually struck out on his own as a software entrepreneur. Okay, so a few things. What, just because I'm curious, what, was, what did he play in football? He was a center. So he's a big guy. <laughs> yeah, a big guy. Yeah, I mean, you're a pretty big guy. Was he bigger than you? Bigger than me, yep. Like 6'4"? Uh, not that much bigger, like 6'2", very yeah, broad. Very broad. You know, farm boy, classic farm boy. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. right. Uh, okay, so then when, when you say he, he became a software entrepreneur, he was coding? 
He was writing software. You know, he got his start on the technical side as a debugger. Um, and so he'd help people debug their code. Uh, and it was really interesting to me. He told me once that, you know, he, he would never look at the code to start with. He would just sit and chat with the person and get to know them. And he said he'd figure out what kind of mistakes they would make based on their personality. Then he'd know where to go look in the code to help them fix it. How? <laughs> Meaning, like, if they're... I can't even imagine. If they're rigid, he thought their code might be... You know, I, I never got to at that level with him, but I suspect he was always... And still very good at reading people and yeah. understanding what motivates people. He was ultimately a CEO and, you know, a good skill for that. And, you know, he, uh, uh, I suspect he'd figure out, you know, which parts of the of the, uh, of the language they knew well, where the weak spots were, and kind of hone, hone in on that. Um, okay, so when he, was he doing this on some sort of freelance basis? No, no, no. He worked for, he worked for IBM um, and uh, actually, yeah. It's my mom, <laughs> who I think is freaking out right you can now. Take it. So let me just check. Am I home safe? Yeah, she was really worried about me this weekend. <laughs> I was up in the Sierras. <laughs> yes, we got home safe yesterday. <laughs> and she really worries. That's what mothers do. It was a big storm. You know, I don't know if you're yeah. tracking it, but it's. Uh, um, well, I, what, what day? All last week and all of this week, it's just pounding the Sierras with rain and snow. Yeah. yeah. I got a little bit. I flew in Saturday. I got a little bit of rain left over in San Francisco. Yeah. Is that part of it? Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, sorry. Back to no, debugger for yeah. IBM. Yeah. Um, and he struck out on his own? Yeah, eventually he struck out on his own. He uh, started a company called uh, Bibliographic Retrieval Systems, BRS, and it was one of the first online databases. Uh, and they indexed, you know, all books in print, all patents, newspaper articles, things like that. And uh, they would sell subscriptions to uh, companies and university libraries and things like that. Um, and you know, he turned that into uh, a pretty successful company. Eventually, sold it off and you know, went and did other things. But uh, you know, when I uh, when I started my first faculty position at Caltech, uh-huh. I logged on to the library to do a literature search, and the first screen was his company. <laughs> it still lived on. It was amazing. I it's, told him about like, it. He was so thrilled. Like, um, like LexisNexis or something? Yeah, it was like a competitor to that, but not in the legal area. No, right. His but, other ones. but how did he get the content into the databases? I mean, these old books and things. They were yeah, they must have licensed it somewhere. You know, they found these databases. They huh. must have licensed it somehow. Okay, so then you grew up with a father who was... Um, on the cutting edge of computer technology, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. And did that, that pique your interest? Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I, I learned to program with punch cards, actually. He used to take me down to the office on weekends, and, uh, uh, you know, the, the coders would teach me how to do things. I'd play with the punch card machine, and, you know, it was, it was a great, great sort of childhood introduction to science and technology, mostly technology for that. But when I'm thinking about punch cards, I think the computers are the size of a, of a wall. Yeah. They, they were oh, that yeah. large back they then? They were huge. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, one of the things I have a very vivid memory of is him telling me, because he basically leased space in a warehouse, um, you know, in Albany or Schenectady, I forget where. And uh, uh, you know, he told me he made a deal with the landlord that uh, he agreed to heat the warehouse in the winter, uh-huh. but the landlord would pay the air conditioning bills in the summer. And what he was doing was all the excess heat from the computer. <laughs> so he didn't have to pay for the heating bill. He didn't have to yeah. pay for the heating or the air conditioning. And, uh, you know, I was just a very clever entrepreneurial thing to do that made a big impression on me. Yeah. Okay. A win-win for both sides, right? Right. Both, yeah. Both sides won. What, what did your mother do? She was a school teacher. Uh, she taught uh, German language in the Miskegon School District. And, and her side of the family, um, similar to your father's 
Farm. Yeah, they were also farmers. They were uh, immigrants, World War II refugees from Germany. Uh-huh. Uh, and, uh, you know, they had uh, lost their farm and their land. It was all sort of taken away. And, and In Germany. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they kind of bounced around a little bit and eventually sponsored for immigration to the U.S. And she grew up on a little farm upstate New York. Also first in her family to go to college. Yeah. And, uh, Both your mother and your father, first in their families to go to college. You're growing up. You have this interest in technology basically and programming mm-hmm. so what, what did you think you know even at a young age what, what your career might be well I had a lot of interests you know I was one of these voracious readers and you know uh, uh, you know I loved the computer thing Silicon Valley the personal computer revolution was all happening then and yeah. you know I would read all the trade rags all that stuff everything I could get my hands on it was like my dream to come out to California and, um, and, and be a part of that. <clears throat> that was one thing. And, you know, as I got older, I got interested in science. And, you know, science and math became uh, a love and an interest. And, you know, by the time I came out to college, I did come out to the West Coast for college. And so was that why? I mean, did you choose the Stanford? You went to you went for Stanford, right? For I went to Stanford, yeah. yep. Was that because of Silicon Valley being close by? And That played a big role, yeah. absolutely. You know, it played a big role. And, uh... uh and when I came out here, you know, I wasn't very well defined in what I wanted to do. You know, I think in computer science, electrical engineering, physics, math, I mean, all those things were uh, uh, of interest. And I just took a lot of courses when I got here. Um, I eventually settled into physics and math. And so you, that's for undergrad. You yep. graduated with mm-hmm. a degree in both physics mm-hmm. and math, right? Yep. Yeah. One thing, you didn't have any interest in football. Uh, as a, <laughs> you know, I, I went to some of the games. I like to throw the football with my roommate, and you know. No, but I mean, sort of you thing. didn't think about playing. In the way oh, I didn't have did the talent. Anything. No, I don't no. think I had the talent. Oh. I played rugby for a couple of years, and I got hurt. But uh, and that was it. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so I mean, I'm trying to follow this. I mean, I, I knew that you were really heavy into physics and, and math, and then your grad degree was also in physics. Yes. Yeah, and that was at Stanford as well. The Oxford. Oh, I missed something here. Okay, yeah. well, well, take me through this. Yeah. Well, you know, so I got to Stanford, you know, took the freshman physics math curriculum and really fell in love with it. Had great professors, they're incredibly inspiring, and that kind of set my course. I mean, engineering, computer science, that all got left to the side, and I sort of fell in love with with, uh, those subjects. I ended up studying both of them, uh, and, you know, they're the way the curriculum is organized, you have these year long courses, and you get out of sequence, it's really bad. Um, it gets hard to finish. You mean if you um, don't follow one course with the next? I mean, if you don't complete the whole year-long sequence, you I get see. out of sequence, and, and that gets you kind of mixed up. And so as a result of that, I never went abroad as an undergrad. I never did the semester abroad because it would you know, get me out of sequence with yeah. the curriculum. And I'd always wanted to do that, however. And so uh, what I decided to do was, after I graduated, go spend a year abroad somewhere doing something. Yeah. Um, as it turned out, uh, I ended up winning a Marshall Scholarship, and so I was paid to go study in Oxford and ended up getting my doctorate there. That's how I ended up uh, living in England for several years. Yeah, and so what, what is it about physics that, um, you know, attracted your, your, in- your intellect? Well, you know, I loved, you know, the way that it had this great power of explanation. I mean, you know, it covered so many phenomena and provided these very concise, elegant uh, explanations for it, you know, and I liked that it was very mathematical and that, you know, in this very small number of equations, you could explain, you know, almost everything that was going on in the universe. Yeah. It was really... Yeah, and that's what I, I always like that about physics, the way that, as you said, you have this 
certain sort of core formulas, and if you can apply them in various ways, you'll eventually w make your way to, to an answer, right? Which is yeah. um, satisfying, to yeah. say the least. Okay, biology, that, however, is not like that. When did you begin to have some sort of switch, or uh, what led you toward, towards the biological sciences? Yeah, um, I started a little bit with my senior undergraduate thesis. Um, I was working with Steve Chu, who, uh -huh. uh, you know, was transitioning his career from atomic physics to biophysics and you know, he had helped invent optical tweezers and was using it for single molecule manipulation and I had had him as a freshman physics professor yeah. and was very inspired and you know I went back to him when I was junior and said I'd like to do research in your lab and he said okay and uh, uh, so I got involved in trying to measure forces on DNA and that started pulling me in the direction of biology and when I went to graduate school I kind of you know, looking around at all of physics and thought this is really great science, but it's a very mature area. And I look over biology and, you know, it felt like it was expanding in every direction. And yeah. Much easier to find the frontiers and, you know, it just uh, felt like there's more to discover there. Wait, let's, let's, can we talk about that, that um, physics felt somehow already discovered to yeah. you? In, in what ways? Meaning that, well, no, you tell me. In what ways? Well, there's this great quote from Dirac I found where, you know, he was kind of bemoaning that, you know, in theoretical physics, uh, you know, in the, uh, in the 30s, even mediocre people were doing great work. Yeah. But in the 70s, great people were doing mediocre work. <laughs> you know, fields, it, it kind of helped me understand that, you know, fields, you know, go through these trajectories. It's not static in science, and certain fields blossom and grow, and then they stagnate and mature, and, you know, uh, uh, I just had a sense that, you know, many areas of physics, the ones I was interested in, were kind of in that stagnation Plateau. phase, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, you know, biology was not. Now, of course, in fairness to physics, other areas of physics have really been blossoming, up. Yeah. right? And, you know, you can look at... Uh, 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 astrophysics and cosmology and you know they over the last 10-20 years really done phenomenally well and so if you if that was your passion that was a good area of physics to get into yeah um, that wasn't what interests me in physics I liked other aspects of it and uh, so I, I, I migrated to this boundary of biology yeah I mean you were not wrong obviously I mean biology has exploded since then it's been yeah. great yeah it's been yeah <laughs> right choice it was the right choice um, okay so at this point you are how old in the story I'm talking about oh uh, you were 20... Yeah, I was in my young 20s, right? I must have been 22 when I graduated from college, and, you know, sort of on the normal trajectory. And, and then 26 when you graduated... Uh, no, so you went to a year at Oxford. PhD at 24. So, yeah, I must have graduated from college roughly 21, 22. Got my PhD at 24, and, yeah, been faculty position at 26. Right, which is super young. Um, how'd that come about, and were you intimidated by that? To be that young and on the faculty. Well, uh, how it came about, um, you know, Oxford in England, they do a short PhD there. Um, it's three years instead of five. Uh -huh. And so that's where I shaved off a couple of years. Um, and then I did a two-year postdoc, and that's sort of a normal length if, yeah. you're, if, you're, if you're fortunate. And so it was that sort of shorter PhD that, uh, uh, that got me a little ahead of the curve. And, uh, uh, you know, what that means is you're a little less prepared <laughs> when you start the faculty position. And so, you know, when I started at Caltech as assistant professor, uh, I was like a postdoc the first couple of years. And so I was really trying to make up for a lot of lost ground and soak it all up. And that was good. I mean, it all worked out okay. 
Uh, well, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, and every once in a while, someone calls and asks if you're Lee Hood, and you have to say, I'm not Lee Hood, and put the phone <laughs> back down. Right. Um, okay, so I mean, I don't know when Fluidime was founded, and I want to talk about that. And I want to talk about, because this, this is reminding me of your father a little bit, right? I mean, suddenly, okay, now there's a business venture that you may apply all your vast intellect toward. Well, you know, the direction my research had gone at Caltech was developing measurement tools for biology, and microfluidics were part of that. And, you know, I wanted to see it have impact. Uh, and I realized that we could publish papers in journals, and that would be good and helpful for my academic career. Yeah. But, you know, it wouldn't really have the full impact in biology unless people could just buy them and use them because these were tough challenging things to make and you know most biologists didn't have that sort of expertise and uh, they just wanted something they could use uh, and so I realized to really see these things uh, uh, have an impact we'd have to have a company that was making them and people just buy them and use them uh, and that led to the founding of Fluidime. So yeah. you're saying you were doing you, you, you had these microchips that you constructed basically yep. yeah? And you were doing research on it and able to publish that, publish that research, but that kept it within your lab, really. And, and a, a small number out. of people who had the skill. Yeah. I mean, the size of the community that had the skills to reproduce and do it, it, it was very small compared to the number of biologists in the world. And rather than have it just be this cloistered thing where only a few people could make these and use them, we wanted to see sort of maximum impact. And until uh, and we realized we had to take a, a different path. And of course, you know, influenced by my hero Lee, who, yeah. you know, had done exactly that for DNA synthesis and sequencing. And, you know, I could see where, um, you know, that had really changed the way biology was done. And, you know, it, it was clear that, uh, uh, that one had to do more than just write papers. Yeah. Okay. So then how do you actually set this company up? How do you do it? How did you find funding? Did you, did you have mentors who helped you through this? Ah, uh, well, you know, <laughs> well, the key thing was to find the CEO. Um, and someone who would do it as their full-time job and really make it a success. Because yeah. I was still not tenured. You know, I, I was going to stay in my Caltech in my lab. I had to do my academic thing. And so I could spend the day a week consulting. But, you know, to so make you this work. You didn't want it. You didn't want to be the CEO. Yeah, you know, that's not my skill set. Um, and uh, why, why not, though? <laughs> I don't have the patience for all the things a CEO needs to do. I mean, you, you go to meetings, show the slides. You know, money. yeah, you got to get along with people. Yeah, <laughs> right. You struggle with that. Yeah. Uh, and I eventually uh, sort of uh, found a, someone who turned out to be phenomenal. Her name was Gaius Worthington, and we had been undergraduates together, uh -huh. uh, both physics majors, and I had gone on this academic career path. He had gone on an industry career path. Um, in the valley in the semiconductor industry and he was looking to do something entrepreneurial uh, and uh, we kind of reconnected uh, and realized we were both looking for the same thing and, and you said I've got this idea I've got yep. this company yeah I have this idea for a company and he said I'm looking to do something entrepreneurial and uh, <clears throat> we reconnected actually uh, uh, by uh, renting a sailboat and sailing around <laughs> the Aegean <laughs> really? together with a bunch of friends yeah he had always wanted to do an epic journey. When we were undergrads, he said, I want to recreate one of the great epic journeys of history. You know, Hannibal going over the mountains or, you know, uh, uh, Odysseus coming back from Troy. I, I want to reconstruct one of those and sort of retrace that. And I thought, wow, that mean, sounds great. You mean like hi historically retrace it? Yeah, exactly. Oh, okay. Yeah, you know, just walk the same paths or sail the same seas and, you know, sort of 
That was our, our idea. What it amounted to at the end was a two-week sailing holiday in Greece. Right. <laughs> so we didn't exactly recreate one of the historical right. journeys, yeah, yeah. but we had a phenomenal time. We rented this sailboat, and he skippered it, and we had a bunch of friends on it. Uh, How many other undergrads, pe- people you both knew from undergrad? Uh no, it was, well, my wife, who is Greek um, and was sort of one of our local experts there, and her sister and a couple of her friends from Greece, and then a bunch of his friends from, you know, that he picked up through, uh, uh, through, uh, through his career and uh-huh. whatnot, and we brought them all together, there were 10 of us, and, uh, and yeah, we sailed around. Pretty big boat then. Yeah, it was a big boat, 50-footer. We were packed really tight, yeah. you know, people sleeping on top. The whole, we were yeah, still yeah. You know, young and yeah, couldn't really afford it. Uh, <laughs> right. Spent a lot of time fixing the engine and you know other things like that. And it was a great adventure. And that was where we kind of uh, reconnected and realized that, hey, there's an opportunity to also go into business together. So just as you're talking over dinner or something yeah. one night, he's sort of like, I'm looking to do something. And you said, you know what, I'm looking to do something yeah. too. And that's how it happened. That's uh, how it happened. Okay. Yeah. So so then, so then now you have this plan. You have the idea. You yeah. think you have the person who can run it. Yeah. Did he have contacts to, to financiers? Neither of us did. I mean, he had a few friends who were VCs. He'd been kind of cultivating a network. But you know the way these things work out. People tell you, oh, tell me when you're going to do your first thing. And then yeah. you, no, sorry. <laughs> so what happened was we founded the company in 99. And... Uh, uh, Just the, the two, you know, the three of you. No. It was me and him and as the co-founders. And he quit his day job. And he convinced two other guys to quit their day job. And we're going to go out and raise money to get this thing right. launched. And that turned out to be like a nuclear winner in biotech. Nobody was writing checks. And we didn't know anybody. So what year is this? This was... This was 99. Okay. Right. And, uh, you know, nine months later... Uh, you know, they're living on ramen. One guy's about to get kicked out of his apartment. Another one going to lose his motorcycle. I mean, it was it was really tough to raise money. Uh, and uh, uh, what happened is uh, an angel investor fell into our lap and funded the company. Uh, a guy named Bruce Burroughs, uh, and you know, he invested the first two million dollars and got the whole thing going. by himself. Yep. So and that started. That started it. That you could open your doors then. Yep. And uh, exactly. But he, but he must have, your CEO must have immediately begun to drum up a serious round after that. Well, what happened was uh, the tide turned um, because there were a couple of successful IPOs in the biotech area, and all of a sudden everyone was staying away from it. It did all of a sudden these things, you know, yeah, yeah, they yeah. wax and wane. And yeah. And this was around. I mean, ninety nine. We're talking about um, decoding the human genome too. It, and, well, and the exactly. Really. So the two things that really uh, turned the tide there were Maxigen and Solera was getting launched then, and both of them had very successful IPOs. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. And all of a sudden, the VCs were really ready to invest again, and so we very quickly did a venture round, um, and uh, uh, and and that just got the whole thing going. Uh, you, you stayed on the faculty. You just advised once or twice yep. a week. Yep. Used for... my consulting time to help with that, and the company. Uh, commercialized uh, several products from things that we come out of our lab doing research. Um, and, uh, you know, the basic valve and pump technology, um, that all was sort of their technological platform, basic foundation. And then the first product around protein crystallization yeah. was something that came out of uh, uh, a very serendipitous interaction and a fantastic collaboration I had with James Berger at Berkeley. We were both Packard Fellows, uh-huh. um, which is an award for young faculty that gives you sort of unrestricted money to work on, on you know, what you think is going to be most exciting. And uh, it starts off with a, they have a meeting every year, and it starts off, all the first-year fellows come and give talks, 15 minutes, and, uh, about and their then, area. then the last, then the fifth-year fellows give their talks about what they're working on. 
And I stood up and said, you know, well, we just invented all this really cool plumbing tools in my lab, and I have no idea what it's good for, but I think it's good for something. I showed a bunch of movies about the valves worked and all that. And afterwards, James came, found me, said, I know what we should use this for. Let's use it for protein crystallization. And, you know, he kind of taught me on all the unsolved problems in protein crystallization and structural biology. And so we, we embarked on a collaboration uh, and I had a phenomenal grad student named Carl Hansen, who was kind of the person who led that project. And designed a chip and we did some calculations realized this could be really good yeah uh he designed a chip tested it went up to james's lab and in one week did more experiments than his best student had done in a year his best postdoc had done in a year really <laughs> and it was like we realized we were onto something there um this sounds like it came together really quickly is it is it is it actually as easy as you're making it sound here well i mean this is happening over many months and you know but but it, still that's quickly yeah it was great yeah it was great and uh, and then we published the paper on that. People were interested. Fluidime decided to license it. They built their first product around it. And, you know, a bunch of great crystal structures that were, you know, only possible with that, um, with that technology. And so that was kind of the beginning. That was Fluidime turning into a real commercial company. If this was your co-founder mm -hmm. and this came out of your lab, how did that relationship between Fluidime and your research work? Did the school have first rights or? Yeah. So everything I did at Caltech was owned by Caltech uh, uh, and Fluidime licensed it through the Office of Technology Licensing. And the guy who ran that office, his name was Larry Gilbert, uh -huh. uh, and he was a fantastically wise person uh, and, and was a mentor to me, actually, uh, and a guy who says we got all this started, I think. And he, you know, when he took over the Caltech, Caltech had a very bad reputation for tech transfer. They were uninterested in doing it, kind of viewed as beneath them. Lee Hood had legendary battles to try to get yes, them to recognize yeah, yeah. the importance of what he was doing there. Yeah. Maybe he touched on that in this yeah. interview with yeah. you. Uh, and uh, that probably contributed in some sense to him leaving. Um, there was a role of that. Um, and eventually, after that, they hired Larry to come in and run tech transfer. And he was sort of a very experienced, older person towards the end of his career, one of these ageless guys. And he just kind of went around and visited all the faculty. Caltech's a small place. And he said, what are you working on? What's interesting to you? And you know, tell him. And he'd say, well, have you thought about filing a patent disclosure about that? And they'd often say no. Yeah. And he said, why don't you just file a disclosure and, you know, we'll see what happens. And in doing that, you know, he, he turned Caltech into a patenting powerhouse where, you know, the year I left Caltech, Caltech had, was getting more issued patents every year than any other university it's um, not per capita. This is total. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it was sort of top of the charts. And it was purely because of him just sort of going around and chatting with people. And, you know, he'd get them to file the disclosures. Then he'd get them interested in, you know, starting a company to try to commercialize. And he'd try to matchmake with investors. He's the one who introduced, introduced us to our angel. Oh, that got okay. us started at Fluidine, for example. And, you know, just a really, you know... He was ahead of the curve, too. Yeah, way ahead of the curve. And really taught me how to how to do that sort of technology transfer from university to to industry and do it in a way that, you know, you're not sacrificing any of the values of the university. Um, and was, that, was that the worry? You, you know, when you, you said Caltech sort of almost thought it was beneath them to yeah. do this, was the worry that it was somehow sullying basic research by trying to... I think people company? felt like that, yeah. There was, yeah. A, there was a faction who felt like that. And it's not to say that, you know, there's not things you need to worry about. Um, Conflict of interests. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, but so... This was years ago. Yeah. How has that changed? I mean, the entire, in, in, 
in in my view, watching I've you know I visit schools, the entire country has now fully changed how they view tech transfer. Do you? Well, agree I think it's swung too far the other way. To be I, no, you know what? I agree with you. It's like everything must be patented now, yeah. and we're all going to have an innovation center, and there's going to be 15 startups coming out a year. It's just not realistic. I mean, yeah. Very few of these technology licensing offices make any money at all, and you know they're founded on very unrealistic ideas, and you know uh, the people who do the licensing are often you know afraid of their inexperience, they're afraid of missing out, and you know they paralyze the process a little bit. You know it, uh, it, it's, uh, yeah, and you know I think the proper role for these offices is to help people's inventions and technologies get out there yeah. and not to really be viewed as profit centers for the university because a few of them get lucky and do that. Um, uh, and then that becomes this beacon that everybody yeah, shoots exactly. for. Right? Yeah, exactly. And it's just not realistic. Huh. Um, and universities are nonprofit enterprises anyways. And the role is to help, the role I think should be to help, you know, see these things help humanity. Um, for instance, if someone in your lab comes up and says, I think I have a really good idea, um, maybe maybe I should patent it. Um, does that happen? And what do you what do you say? Yeah. So I, I will encourage them to file a disclosure, absolutely. If, and, you know, if I think there's something worth protecting. And, uh, and you know, <laughs> uh, I've had several people in the lab go off and be entrepreneurial and found companies themselves now. And, you know, kind of the next generation is Do doing anything, it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we, we try to be selective about it, though, I think. I mean, yeah. So one of the big decisions around an invention is, is it big enough to support a whole company? Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow! Did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com/acast and use code acast for twenty percent off your first purchase. Or is it something that you license out as an individual invention to somebody? Yeah. Um, there's some company, and you know, let's. It becomes a piece of something bigger, and that's kind of I, I think the first and most important decision um and you know i've fallen on both sides of that for different things along the lines um yeah yeah uh okay um so I, a couple things i want to ask you uh about your wife yeah yeah so is she a scientist nope how'd you, how'd you she studied her? byzantine literature <laughs> wow i love it we met in england we were both at oxford 
Oh, you're both students, yeah. 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 And then do you have kids? I don't know. Uh, two kids. Yeah. Are they boys, girls? One of each. Do they mountain ski with you? Do you do, I don't know, how old are they? Uh, 14 and 11. My daughter's yeah. 14, my son's 11. Really and young for mountain skiing. We do a lot of ski. We ski in the resort together. I haven't taken them in the backcountry yet, but they're old enough now. I think we could do that. I'm starting to think about it. But they're both excellent skiers. Yeah. We spend a lot of time uh, in the mountains together. Okay. Um, so I think, tell me where I'm wrong, but you have founded or co-founded four companies? Ten. Ten. Good Lord. Way wrong. Okay. So Fluidime, I know Helicos is one. Mm-hmm. What are the others? Uh, all right. Fluidime, Helicos, uh, Veronata, uh, which was for prenatal. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Testing. Uh, Quanacell. Uh, which was a cancer therapeutics company with Mike Clark, uh-huh. acquired by Celgene last year. Uh, <clears throat> Immumetrics, which we merged with CareDX, and that took, uh, with XDX, became CareDX. Yep. That became uh, uh, the leader for organ transplant rejection testing. Uh, Moleculo, uh-huh. which was one of my students' companies that uh, uh, I helped them found it. Uh, Carius. I don't know Carius. Uh, that's a... Uh, Cell-free DNA infectious disease diagnostic company uh-huh. founded by one of my former postdocs based on work we've done here. Cellular research, uh, which I co-founded with Steve Fodor, uh, and then uh, Genevere, which is a, a therapeutic company uh-huh. for antivirals, and uh, molecular stethoscope, which is uh, cell-free RNA testing for neurodegenerative and cardiometabolic disease. So you're constantly co-founded with Aristotle. You're you're always. It's not as if you're, you're done co-founding companies. You're constantly looking to do more if, if the if the idea is correct. It's been a great run, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So you like this part. You I like, do. Yeah. yeah. And for the same reasons. I mean, this is how you go beyond dusty journals in the library and yeah. impact on people's lives. Yeah. With the prenatal diagnostics, you know, I mean, that's something that now more than a million women every year are getting a test based on so that, that, and it's saving thousands of lives a year. Let's talk about this. This this came out of your own life, right? It's through your wife's pregnancy. Absolutely. Um, you know, when we had our first kid, uh, we were still at Caltech, uh-huh. and, you know, we were of the age where, you know, they suggested invasive testing, and the doctor, the OB, was a very nice man. You know, says, you guys, we recommend amniocentesis. Do you think you want to do that? And we're kind of like, yeah. In theory, that sounds like a good thing. And he says, okay. And he turns around with a gigantic needle, yeah. rams it right in my wife's belly, <laughs> draws the, and I flew up, whoa, you know. And that was, uh, that was, you know, we kind of realized that's, that's not be. optimal, yeah. right? And this yeah. idea that you have to risk your baby's life um, to ask a diagnostic question just didn't seem right. Um, and that's because the needle may touch something absolutely yeah okay yeah, it's right up there next to the fetus and you know the half to one percent of, of lost pregnancies are associated with those sorts of things i had no idea yeah. okay all right so you thought there's got to be a better way let's see if gotta I be a better way as so i was rattling around in the back of my head for a number of years and uh and we went on a kid number two and same sort of thing different invasive tests but same problem and then i eventually stumbled upon this literature about cell-free dna um and you know, that it existed. Turns out I've been known since the late 40s. Uh-huh. Um, but it had been this very quiet corner of science, very obscure. And people were studying in the context of cancer because neither tumor DNA in the blood. And eventually, Jim Wainscoat's group at Oxford had figured out that there's some fetal DNA um, in the Free mom's floating. blood as well. Yeah. Exactly. And that was, you know, late 90s. 
And you know, I mean, I, in just minuscule amounts. Yeah, very small amounts. Um, early in pregnancy, it's a few percent. Later in pregnancy, it gets to be 10, 20 percent. Uh-huh. But uh, uh, you know, people were using it for trying to determine baby's gender and things like that. But the real thing to figure out is how to use it to replace uh, genetic testing for trisomies, Down syndrome, that sort of thing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, people were trying to do it, but uh, with ideas that that weren't very good. Um, and you know, I kind of put two and two together and realized that you know, AIDS is a big problem, and you know, this cell-free DNA is probably the way to do it. And the third piece was all the work we had done uh, over the years in single molecule biophysics and developing sequencing technologies, and realizing that the way to do this measurement was through counting molecules and not through any of the more traditional biological measurement approaches, analytical chemistry. Yeah. And, and that was the insight that opened the whole field up. And so at this point, you knew how to start companies, and you said, we're going to start one around this technology. No. In fact, what happened there was, you know, we, uh, we did the work at Stanford, uh-huh. you know, to, to show that it would, that it was actually it's going to work. Right. And, you know, there was a whole interesting story behind that. A phenomenally talented student named Christina Fan, um, who was one of the first bioengineering students at Stanford, she did the work in the lab, and we, you know... Uh, teamed up with some of the docs, the maternal fetal medicine docs, and helped us get, they helped us get clinical samples, and we eventually showed that it was going to work. We figured out how to count the molecules using sequencers, published the paper in 2008, uh-huh. and then everyone got all excited. That was the thing that opened the whole field up, was the paper. Um, and you know, our work was very quickly replicated in other labs around the world, um, and then people came calling. Um, oh, and in that okay, case... Yeah. You know, what we ended up doing was instead of founding a company, DeNovo, uh, we licensed it to Veronata, and they kind of, this was a company that had been trying to do prenatal diagnostics through looking at circulating fetal cells, which has been another area that ended up being a big dead end. Uh-huh. They spent a lot of money, and the investors kind of just rebooted it. So they rebooted it around our technology. I became a scientific founder. Uh, they brought in Rich Raba mm-hmm. uh, to, uh, to, to be the CSO, and you know, he basically um, figured out how to turn it into a real diagnostic. And it was, I think, the first uh, real application of the human genome and next-generation sequencing in clinical medicine, right? I yeah. mean, and, you know, and it's touching more lives than anything else that this genomic stuff uh, has, has impacted. That's yet. true, yeah. You're proud of that. Very proud of it. Yeah. 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 So, if uh, I mean... Is that the default way to test uh, prenatal now? Very quickly, it's becoming the default. Absolutely, amnio rates are plummeting, and, uh, and so there's w- probably half a dozen different companies out there now who are using one form or another of this test and offering it. Maybe what, more. What's required uh, in, in like just a blood draw? How much? Uh, you know, I think they're probably doing 10 mils, and they use a fraction of that for the test. That's great. Yeah, yeah you really. Uh, so that's one where it's very easy. I mean, a lot of times when companies are started, uh, I don't know. Maybe this is going to sound wrong, but like that's very easy to see how that has changed, how that has affected people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Two things I, I definitely want to talk about. One is you just talking about sequencing. Um, you sequenced your genome. You're mm-hmm. one of the first handful of people to do this in yep. the world. Yep. Um, I want to talk about why you decided to do it um, and what became of the, you know, the paper. What what that did to the research area. Yeah. So let's let's start there. Yeah. So I had been interested in sequencing technology. Um, as a sort of academic research thing. Those are the early days of the Human Genome Project. Yeah. And, you know, it was clear that, you know, 
you could spend billions of dollars with ABI to do it. And at that point, it wasn't clear people would actually do that. It seemed yeah. kind of crazy. That's yeah. sort of what happened with the first reference genome. Yeah. But there were also a lot of efforts. There was a, rec a recognized need that one needed newer technologies. It would be faster, cheaper, and so forth. And that had permeated into the physics community as well. And um, I kind of drunk that Kool-Aid and thinking about how to do sequencing. And uh, a lot of my academic research in those days was around single molecule biophysics. So I started thinking about, was there a way to use these techniques to read out the sequence of a single DNA molecule? And we eventually did that um, at Caltech. And uh, again, a very talented postdoc named Ido Braslavsky um, did that work in the lab and was the first author on the paper. And he's actually right out there right now. He's visiting Stanford this year on sabbatical. He's ah. become a professor himself, and uh, he's here visiting Stanford this year. Um, and uh, so we should sort of show proof of principle how it would work. Very short read length, very small number of molecules, but we said, look, you can do the math. Think about how many molecules you can put on a class slide per square micron, and numbers are astronomical. Uh -huh. and, uh, uh, and that paper caught the attention uh, of, a, of a venture capital group Named Flagship Ventures, and they got me to go meet with their managing partner, Nubara Fan, and yeah, I know him. You know, he said, "We're interested in this," and I said, well, "That's great, you know." Um, uh, uh, and eventually, it led to founding Helicos, um, and they had an entrepreneur in residence named Stan Lapidus, who uh, became the CEO and uh, led Helicos. Edo spent six months at the company, transferring the technology. They licensed it all from Caltech. And uh, they built the world's first single molecule sequencer, and uh, and then their first product was the world's fastest, cheapest sequencer. I mean, for a while, they they were the leaders in the yeah. whole space. Um, vastly cheaper, though, was it yeah. not? I mean, vastly it, cheaper, yeah, absolutely, it was like fifty thousand dollars or something. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And uh, so when they built that first instrument, you know, they were charging a lot. So their model was, you know, you should pay a lot for the hardware and then get all this. Um, cheap sequencing behind yeah. it, yeah. and uh, and there were small number of customers, and you know one of the big controversies was was it good enough to sequence the human genome? And you know at, at that point, even though it was the fastest, cheapest sequencer, the read lengths were a little bit shorter than Illumina, who's the big competitor, yeah. and the error rate was higher. And so people were saying, I don't know, is it gonna be good enough? Are the reads long enough? Is the error rate low enough? Da 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 da. And you know eventually. I just said, screw it. We're going to, you know, I couldn't, you know, the company guys were a little confused. And, you know, I said, we bought an instrument at Stanford. We had, we were one of their first customers. And I said, we're going to use this thing. We're going to sequence a human genome on it. And it's going to be my genome. And we're going to prove to everybody that it's good enough. Uh, but but why, why yours? Just because if, if it's going to be an experiment, you might as well be the one who puts yourself on the line? Or because it would be hard to find someone else to do it? Or yeah, both I reasons? think, you know, it was... It was a lot of that, that, you know, this was really terra incognita. We weren't sure about all the implications of what it would mean for this yeah. person in their life yeah. and interpreting yeah. all that. And, you know, it was hard to me to figure out who to ask <laughs> to do that. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to know, and I was willing to do it. So I became the, the patient zero, the test subject. All right. So then, you know, I mean, we're still grappling with this today. What do you do with this information? This was years ago. What yeah. did you do with it? When you, when you had this laid out in front of you, I mean, this is... You know, you could have found something horrible. Well, I mean, it was like a shiver running down my spine. You know, like looking at uh, the, yeah, the, the handbook that God gave you, yeah, right? Yeah, right, right. <laughs> and trying to figure. And but you've also got to realize that you know there weren't really tools to help you interpret it. And so you know, you had this big pile of data, and you could sort of convince yourself you'd sequence the genome. But you know, 
uh, and the, you could technically convince yourself you had done it, but what did it mean? Yeah. That was a yeah. whole other question. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we started out, um, we approached it a number of different ways, and uh, uh, George Church was thinking about ways to sort of automate the whole known genetic literature as a way of trying to <laughs> map everything you'd measure to what was known. Yeah. And he had a little software to do that. Um, I forget what they called it. It was some clever little name. And so I called him up. I said, like, can we use your software? I said, absolutely. And so and we sent him the data, and they sent us access to the web page. And I began paging through it and looking at things that were popping up as new variants and things. And, and it was very interesting, you know. And But it's all, you know, it's not like it's prioritized, right? It's just all this yeah. stuff. And so you're paging through and looking for this and that and searching for things and and I mean, so you're, you're literally going through, okay, well, we know that this allele is linked to this disease. Yeah. Oh, I have that. And then putting it, yeah, you know, okay, right. you're matching kind of up serving your up these web pages and you could search for, it was, it was fascinating and it was so much fun. And, you know, and so, uh, I'm in my office one day doing that and, you know, popped on one that's related to, uh, cardiomyopathy where I've yeah. got a novel variant in this gene that's been linked. And for some reason, I forget why, you and Ashley was coming by to visit me, one of the young cardiology faculty, genetic specialist, and we were talking about something else. I said, oh, while you're here, yeah. what does this mean? <laughs> <laughs> and he says, what's that? And I said, that's my genome. <laughs> said, you're kidding. Uh, and that led to the whole collaboration to, to do the clinical annotation of my genome. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you and organized a whole so I had like half the medical school working on my genome at one point, it felt like. I mean, the list of authors on the paper is enormous. And, uh, but... You know, people like Atul Butte and Russ Altman all contributed from their own areas of expertise about how to, you know, how a doctor should treat a patient yeah. who walks into his office and said, you know, here's my genome. This was also completely you know. unknown. This was this had yeah. not been done before that either. So were they before. as interested in this as, as you were? Absolutely. Look, we had this genome yeah. to go over. Yeah. yeah. Okay. They loved it, and it was, you know, incredibly meaningful for them from the research point of view. And then they all went off and started a company, actually. Based oh, they on, did? Uh, yeah, they started a genome interpretation company called Personalis, um, huh. based on the work they had done on my genome. Uh, so what did you, the, the cardiomyopathy, what did you, when you, when you saw that, did you go, okay, I, I now need to, I don't know, make some sort of changes in my life or modify my behavior or eating or something? I don't know. Well, you know, uh, so Ewan, who was doing the cardiology part, you know, this was uh, a novel variant, never been seen before. Uh Obviously, a rare mutation. Yeah. Uh, you know, everyone's got a few of those, right? We're all carrying a few skeletons in our genetic closet. That happened to be one of mine. And, you know, first you had to figure out, you know, is there meaning to this mutation? Right. And because it's in a gene where other mutations are known to be linked to cardiomyopathy, they thought, okay, you've probably got a higher than average risk of cardiomyopathy. And, uh, and therefore, you should be screened more frequently. Um, this is something that's not a lifestyle-related thing, yeah. really. Okay. It's more about thickening of the muscles of the oh, heart. Oh, yeah, yeah, right, right, right. And so, you know, you do ultrasound, things like that. And so, you know, it's a way to ration testing in a way that people who are higher risk are tested more frequently. And that's the value of the genome in that particular area. Right. So this, we were talking about this, but so I had mine done, too. And most of it... Um, you know, as you know, it's pretty mundane. It says things like you may have blonde hair, and you can say, well, I already knew that, or, you know, your skin may be this or whatever. But there were two things that were, as you know, you're thumbing through your results. One was that I had an allele or have an allele for Alzheimer's, yeah? No one in my family's had it, so that gives you some relief. And that the you other, know of. That I know of, right. Yeah. I mean, that helped me feel a little better about it. And the other, other was um, an increase for pancreatic cancer, but it was... It pushes your percentage, your chances to like 1.8% or something. And that also 
you know, it just becomes, well, now I have that information, but you can't do anything with that particular stuff other than, you know, this is what you were struggling with when you had yours. Like, what do you do with that information? What do we do as we continue to sequence genomes, hopefully more, more frequently? Yeah. Well, you know, pancreatic cancer is one of those really challenging ones. It's often not found until it's too late. Right. And, you know, if it's a substantial increase in risk, you know, there's going to be this whole generation of liquid biopsies. And it's the kind of thing you'd monitor probably a little more closely with your GP on an annual basis. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, you know, it'd be worthwhile for you to bring this up to, to be GP. testing. Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah, to be yeah. testing. That's one of the challenges, right? Yeah. That, you know, many of the predictions are very small changes in risk. You know, if it's significant, you've got to be able to sort of derate that or take that into consideration. Um, the other part that was really useful is the pharmacogenomics that Russ Altman's group did, where, you know, they can tell you these drugs will work for you, these yeah. will have side effects, these you want to change the dose. Those are often based on very sort of uh, concrete biochemistry and, you know, yeah. association risk things. And, you know, I, I think there's value in that for the pharmacogenomics. It's part of the, the, the challenge being that, okay, um, you know, you know you have this variant. It means your risk is increased by this much. But how do you push that through your insurer or other payers or convince your GP who may not know as much about this as you obviously do that, okay, we need to do these tests? Like, that's the other big challenge as you know, this wave of information comes into the healthcare system. Absolutely. And this is why the annotation, the clinical annotation, was so interesting for these guys. Because they wrote the paper as a handbook. I gave it to my GP. Here's the paper about my genome. Oh, I love it. I love it. <laughs> he found it useful. Yeah. He looked at it, and, you know, he talks about the different things when I go see him. But does it feel like we're, we're years away from that kind of response? Or where your GP actually can go, okay, I have someone's genome, now I'm going to change the way that I treat them? It's going to take years. Yeah. Yeah. And it's all happening. And, you know, but, uh, you know, I think certainly in this country, so much of healthcare is driven around economics. And, you know, people don't, you know, the insurers, the payers, the economic benefit of it hasn't really been solidified in their minds yeah. yet. And they need more data and more experience to get there. Um, I think we'll get there. Um, but, uh, yeah. All right. So this actually, how are we doing on time? I got about a quarter of. Yeah. So let's let's. This actually is a good segue into the Chan Zuckerberg Biohub, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's a big initiative. It's brand new. You're co-heading it. Uh, it's well funded. Um, I think the thing that stood out, at least, you, you know, they they sort of uh, hopefully said that we're going to cure all disease within our child's lifetime. I think that the scientific community balked at seeing that written out, but. Um, what are your hopes for it, and is this part of it, this sort of wave of genomic information, what we can do, how can we treat disease better? Well, I mean, you know, we view the Biohub as kind of the, Joe and I, Joe DeRisi, who's the co-president yeah. with me, uh, we view the Biohub as kind of the technological engine that's going to drive uh, the ability to complete that mission for the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, which is to cure, manage, or treat all human disease by the end of the century. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, you know... As a goal, as an aspirational goal, I think it's fantastic. Um, I'm not sure I'm going to be around to see the end of it, uh, but even if it's only half done, yeah. I think it'll be fantastic. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and I like that we have such a broad license to work on many interesting things, um, and that freedom is nice for us. Rather than being targeted on one disease or one thing, I think that's great. And at the BioHub, uh, you know, we view this as a chance to lift the whole Bay Area. I mean, it's really. Uh, the first uh, op- 
opportunity that's brought together all three major universities, Stanford, UCSF, and Berkeley. And we have them all working together now like they never have before. Um, we're going to be funding uh, uh, 60 of the most talented researchers at their universities to work on their riskiest, most exciting idea. Yeah. Um, and, you know, uh, we're nearing the end of that competition. Uh, it's been phenomenal. I mean, the proposals are amazing. The quality is incredible. Uh, so we're very excited uh, about being able to help these people's research in the same way that you know, I was helped when I was a Packard fellow. Yeah. And, you know, it was very meaningful for my career, and it enabled me to make this transition to get into sequencing and genomics. That happened because of that. That's how we paid for the research on this single molecule sequencing. Oh, okay. I couldn't get grants for it at that point. Yeah. Um, and I'm hoping that we'll be able to create similar career turning points for some of the talented faculty here in the Bay Area. But we're also building an institute. Um, and uh, uh, it's located up in Mission Bay, the headquarters. Uh -huh. uh, and we think we're doing some great research there. Um, we're going to create tools for the whole scientific community uh, and basic science around this cell atlas, uh, which we're trying to make an atlas of all the cell types of the human body and health and disease. Uh, and our work is there, I think, also nucleating, hopefully, a global collaboration. Many people have become interested. Again, the technologies for doing that. Yeah. Uh, many of them come from my lab and others in the Bay Area. So the Bay Area have been kind of a technological engine for that field, and we're going to now help see it through, I think, to hopefully full scientific uh, bloom. We also have a great project in infectious disease. Yeah. Uh, where Those are the two sort of yeah. pillars, right? Yeah. Yep. Um, where, you know, uh, Peter Kim is leading that one, and uh, you know, he's guy led R&D at Merck for a decade, uh -huh. and also a very distinguished scientist, and so has seen both the academic and the industry sides, and has a very nuanced sense of what are the right things to work on, um, but we're hopeful that that's going to lead to a number of new diagnostics and therapeutics uh, for things that you know, currently aren't uh, treatable. I mean, so looking at your background, I, I see why you're a great person to co-head this. Why, why do you think you're the right choice to co-head this? I have no idea. I just stumbled oh, into it yeah, like so on, many things. It, uh, <laughs> I'm very, you know, Mark and Priscilla uh, uh, spent a lot of time thinking about how they wanted to do their science philanthropy. Yeah. And uh, this was a full year in the planning. Uh, and uh, Joe and I had a number of conversations with them. Uh, but they also spoke very, very broadly with the scientific community. And they were not afraid to call up the phone and ask, you know, anybody, anything about what they, you know, they thought and what was the right path for this. And uh, so I'm just very grateful that, you know, apparently I, Joe and I do have some friends out there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we weren't the worst people in the world to lead this thing. And, uh, no, no, but you, I mean, you know. your background obviously is good. For, it's, it crosses disciplines, uh, I think, which is key when you're trying to bring together three universities like this. I mean, that obviously has something to do with it. I mean, your background of math, physics, before biology, that seems like a perfect fit. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that factored in because, you know, they didn't want it to be very technology-oriented. They really believe that technology drives science. Yeah. And, you know, not everyone in the scientific community believes that, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but I do. They do. They were convinced. And uh, Joe believes it. Oh, that's great. I think also the fact that, you know, I spent the previous 10 years starting a new department at Stanford. You know, when I moved to Stanford, it was to start the bioengineering department. And we built it uh, from scratch into a phenomenal department. We hired a ton of great people and... You know, that experience of helping build uh, a smaller institution, academic department, yeah. I think sort of uh, certainly gave me the confidence that I could contribute something to the Biohub. Yeah. Uh, it sort of leads me into this question, and, and this could probably possibly be our last one, but it's looking at your background um, with the computer programming, um, just the computer sort of like um, 
expanding greatly while, while you were at a young, impressionable age, helped form the kind of research that you were going to be, right? And other things have expanded in the new generation, things like handheld phones, um, apps. Are you finding different kinds of researchers are coming out because they grew up as that was sort of blowing up? Does that make any sense? Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. I see it mostly from the kind of pedagogical point of view as a professor teaching students here. You know, it used to be the students would come to college and they knew how to build stuff. Cause they take apart radios and yeah. make things and, you know, done electronics, all that. Nobody does that anymore. Yeah. Right? And, you know, they may be done coding and things like that. But, uh, you know, you ask yourself, what does it mean to make an engineering curriculum now, which we did for undergrads and grads, and we realized, you know, we have to make part of the curriculum explicitly teaching them how to make things because those are skills that they don't you can't assume they come in with it anymore you mean, you mean circuits you mean like yeah, yeah like labs so the amount of hands-on lab in our curriculum for our undergrads is substantial and we realized that that had to be a real focal point and stanford would have to invest in that because it's expensive to make teaching labs yeah um but to to really um make the best engineers that had to that had to and Stanford did that, so it's been great. And so that's sort of how I see it. You know, definitely this generation they're coming with a different set of skills and that's good. Um but we have to, as we set up our curriculum, also be mindful of what it means to like fill provide a complete education. A yeah. But do they do they also come in with skill sets that no researcher has ever had before because the technology wasn't there. So that while they may be lacking in some areas, they are sort of also ahead of the curve in some areas? Uh well, you know. <laughs> or maybe not. Maybe, maybe you know, not. I think, you know, you can definitely find people with coding skills that are ahead of the curve. I mean, for sure. Um, but, you know, it's, uh, uh, you know, I wouldn't say people have come in doing things that have never been possible before because, you know, it's, we've had a good run in academia. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Across fields. Uh, one, one final thing. So, you know, I think the dream has been for, I don't know, a decade or two at least, that you would go to the doctor and they will take a drop of your blood and then tell you everything you need to know about your body from it. Um, is that a possibility in our lifetime? Well, yes. I mean, that's kind of the vision behind molecular stethoscope and all these folks doing liquid biopsies for cancer. I mean, there's a lot of information in the blood. Yeah. Um, and you can learn not just about genotype, but about phenotype. And uh, uh, that's, for me, one of the very exciting frontiers in diagnostics we'll see explored over the next several years. Great. I appreciate the talk, man. Thank you. Great to meet you. Okay, there it is, your first rounders podcast with Stephen Quake. Yeah, I... Um you may have been able to tell. I took gear out to Stanford, so I had my recording stuff and went into Metamina's office on the campus and did the the interview there. So you may have heard there's some sort of um, rumblings in the background coming from the lab itself. I don't know. It makes it authentic. Maybe you, uh, you felt like you were in his lab. Um, thank you, Stephen Quake, for taking the time and uh, doing the interview. I really enjoyed the talk. Uh, anything else I need to say? Yeah, I will put up on our blog some information about the lab, about the biohub, about Stephen um, anything else I can think of. And if you have comments or questions, you may reach us on Twitter. Our handle is at Nature Biotech. And um, what else? I don't know. That's it. I will talk to you later. And goodbye.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.